Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode one of the Books, Books, Books Griffith Review series. Today I'll be talking with the editor of the Griffith Review, Dr. Ashley Hay, about edition 72 called States of Mind and published in April 2021. Griffith Review edition 72, the second of 2021, is called States of Mind. Ashley, why did you decide to deal with that topic and what issues did you hope to explore? I think it was a really good time to take on a topic that Griffith Review had been thinking about for a long time. So the question of mental health, uh, mental wealth, which is a lovely phrase that I learnt through the making of this book, and mental illness has had always been a sort of social issue and, and a political issue and a medical issue and, you know, something that we were keen to look at at some point. And watching the world and Australia move through 2020 and move through the kind of beginning of the pandemic and the understanding of how that was going to impact our lives and the way we worked, the way we connected, the way we thought, everything that we could and couldn't do, it felt like a very good time to step into that space. One of the reasons we were keen, I guess, is because it's a I don't mean this to sound um, dismissive or sort of trite, but it's a gift of a topic in a way in terms of how many different uh, prisms you can bring to bear on it. So for us being able to come in uh, through a sort of perspective of policy, being able to look at some really interesting questions around pharmacy and, and you know, the kind of medical responses, um, being able to talk with practitioners across a lot of different areas of psychology, psychiatry, counselling. The other thing, of course, with this particular edition is we know that our readers really respond to first-person voices and to very engaging experiential stories, I guess. Um, I don't think that's um, just to do with Griffith Review readers, but I think that's an important sort of element of it. And so obviously when we put this call out, out and when we started talking to people about this edition, we knew this would be something that would really resonate with a very broad spectrum of writers and researchers and academics. And if you can get that resonance between the words and the page in the first place, I think you have a better chance of getting the resonance with the words and the readers in the second place. Ashley, in your introduction to the book, you write about the impact of COVID-19 on mental health. And you refer in particular to research done by Oxford University and the NIHR Oxford Biomedical Research Centre. Could you talk a little bit about what that research showed? I think what was fascinating about that, and it's something that fascinates me at a narrative level about the pandemic in general, is we are having to respond to this thing that is happening in real time. And we don't know what the end of the story is yet, which is kind of um, 
well, I think that puts anyone off balance. But humans in particular, you know, we like agency. We like to know what's going to happen at the end of the story. Now, this piece of uh, research that had come out um, was saying that there's this, there's a lot of work happening around long COVID and the sort of ongoing impacts of the pandemic. And that's something that I think, you know, we're really just at the beginning of where we need to be and what we need to understand. And it was talking about in the context of long COVID, there were some there were some sort of mental health issues and psychological issues that were coming up for people. And that was interesting in and of itself. But then they drilled into people who had been um, diagnosed and who tested positive in the first place. And they found that there seemed to be a higher rate of positive infections amongst people who identified as having mental health issues or psychological issues in the first place. I think it was 65% that they were 65% more likely to get COVID. What it said to me was here was one of these amazing little facts that, that, that you don't really know how to unpack. You don't know if it's, you know, causative, correlative. You don't really know what's going on yet. But I think the line from the report that I was reading, which I think was just in one of the the newspapers, was one of the places I came across it, was basically saying this is something we need to know more about. You know, it looks like this is a kind of a – um, this is something that puts you at risk, you know, this is a risk factor and that's interesting. Um, so again, that's the beginning of a story rather than the end of it and I think with COVID that's we, we've been trying, it, it's, a, it's a protective mechanism to think we, we treat this like something we can see the end of. What Part of what is so fascinating is there are going to be so many stages of this story unravelling. So again, that was one of the reasons that we thought, well, this is an issue we've always been interested in exploring, the way that we explore things. This is a time when different conversations are being had around mental health and this pandemic is changing how a lot of people are thinking about it, are experiencing things, you know, just what people want to know about and have to respond to in their own lives. As you say in the introduction, this book, this edition, is more than just an exploration of the impact of COVID on mental health. It tackles a broad range of issues relating to psychiatry, psychology, pharmacology. As in all of the editions of Griffith Review, the 31 contributors uh, or contributions are divided up according to genre, essay, memoir, reportage, fiction, poetry. And that's how we're going to talk about them today. I'm going to select a few pieces from each category and ask you about those. We'll start with essays and reportage, and there were, I just note, 11 of those. So I should make it clear, listeners, it's been very difficult to pick for each category those to talk about. I wish I could talk about all of them. I can't. I can recommend to all of you that you read this fabulous book in its entirety, but all I can do today is ask Ashley about a few selected ones. So let's start with an essay by Professor Patrick McGorry, who's one of Australia's leading psychiatrists, in fact, with an international reputation in this area. He alerts us to some pretty extraordinary statistics that I certainly wasn't aware of. He writes generally about the chronic neglect of mental health care in Australia and, in fact, internationally. And that's despite the fact, I've just picked out a couple of the facts that really drew my attention. At least half Australians, half of all Australians, will experience a period of mental health in our lifetimes. Five million Australians, it's on my maths, that's nearly 20%, are affected each year, costing us 200 to $220 
billion a year. And then he makes the point in relation to uh, funding of mental health care generally that around the world only 2% of what is spent on health care is spent on mental health. He says, and he strongly believes, that most mental illnesses are treatable and so much death and disability could be reduced, he says, by accessible, timely, multidisciplinary, high-quality care. That is what we need. Ashley, I'd like you to tell us about what are some of the problems with the existing mental health care in Australia that he identifies? Well, I think um, for Pat, and he's someone who's writing from um, an, an a really long and illustrious career in this space as a researcher, um, as a practitioner and as an advocate, which I think is, you know, sort of important to think about too. So for him, I think the the sort of driving part of the piece is exactly as you say, that so much here is treatable and that there are there are a lot of options that already exist that we know work. Um, but there are also there's also a need to kind of look at things from a holistic level, and I think um, one of the things that's interesting in in Professor McGorry's piece and across a number of the pieces in the book is working with writers and researchers who are willing to think into this complexity rather than saying there's this single idea and that will fix that or there's there's one problem here and if we tick that box everything is okay. It's people who are willing to say we can see the complexity, we can see the nuance of this situation and we know that we know that we have to kind of look not just down one laneway or one one discipline, but we need to scoop in, you know, the social socioeconomic factors or the, you know, the the kind of biophysical aspects of something, the psychosocial aspects of something. Um, and I think it's looking at all those different parts of it and understanding understanding the scale of the problem in the first place or the scale of what's at play is maybe better than saying the scale of the problem, understanding that there are different ways and different times that we can intervene. I think one of the most exciting and powerful parts of Professor McGorry's piece is all the different parts of his own experience that he brings to bear on it. So he's not just talking about a single approach to a single problem or or one single thing that might um, you know, fix something in particular. He takes this very holistic and complex overview of of the state of the mental health landscape. And I think it was in his piece that I first came across the term mental wealth, which I loved because it reframed this idea. You know, the figure that you quote, the $200 billion of cost is extraordinary. And when you flip it around and think, you know, let's think about mental wealth, let's think about what what everybody functioning, um, not functioning, but everybody being able to do the best living and let alone working that they can, what that means, uh, stripped away from the kind of economics of it and just purely in a in a kind of existential space, that's really fascinating. But I think the richness of Pat's own experience and very long involvement in so many facets of this conversation and his willingness to share that in a really deep and personal way, um, I think it just means that you get the sense that you can see the landscape differently, that there's no quick fix silver bullet thing 
Um, there's just a really careful understanding of a lot of the complexity that's at play and, and the tools that we do have to walk into some of those spaces and really make an appreciable difference for people. Ashley, I'd, li- I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the suggestions he makes as to how to improve the system. One of the ones that he puts a lot of emphasis on is better prevention and early intervention and another is greater funding for mental health health research so that we have safer and better drugs. Would you like to talk a little bit about those too? Um, I think the question of prevention is interesting. We had a launch for this edition um, up in Brisbane last week and another contributor to the book, Kyle Perry, who some of your listeners might know as a novelist. Kyle also works as a counsellor and he had this lovely line of, of basically saying, you know, one of the, the critical things to think about in terms of prevention and treatment is that this isn't mental health and questions of mental health and mental illness are not something that we can give to one um, group of practitioners to think about or give to one sector of our population and make them deal with it. It is a whole community problem. And and I think my sort of hearing of what he was talking about is partly this is about the way community is so important to our mental health in the first place, but also saying, you know, all of us need to sort of have this have this job of looking out for each other and looking after each other and, and you know, sort of making those connections. So if you start to break it into those very frightening numbers that Pat gives, you know, you're into billions of dollars, you have to be thinking about it in terms of prevention, don't you? Just do you want to know where you can come in in the first place and kind of look at these things. Now, in the question of, of research, um, this intersects very powerfully with another couple of pieces in the book, pe- reportage pieces around different pharmacological research that's going on at the moment. And both of these pieces, one by Kate Cole Adams and one by Bianca O'Grady, part of what they're looking at is we know, and we know a lot more about this because of the last year, any new drug, any new treatment needs to go through a lot of trials. There are There is so much regulation and testing that needs to go on. And around mental health, I guess it is a it is a different space again because it's it's trying to you know you really need to know what you're doing in a sense. So I think Pat makes the point about how much money uh, goes into researching drugs for cancer and the kind of you know the figures that are involved and then the time that's involved. And I guess it's sort of saying if we are looking at all the ways we want to address mental illness and we can see the impacts at a social level and an economic level, you know, we do seem to have a a sort of a massive amount of money going here to this kind of drug but not a similar amount of money coming here to treat these kinds of things. And then that also feeds out again to saying, well, beyond the research for the pharmacological approaches, what are the other things that we can put into place that give people other tools to access, other things to try, other options to to change what they're experiencing in that way. And he has some other, as you say, broader suggestions as well. He says the NDIS for mental health needs to be rethought, vocational training needs to be improved. And although we've talked about prevention and intervention and how important they are, he says Prevention is better than cure, but don't just spend your money on the former. It's very important to spend your money on the on the latter as well, and that's one of the big things he calls for, isn't it? Increased funding for improved, and this is something he really emphasises, age-appropriate care. He gives examples of how care in the past has just not been – it's not been um, – well, hasn't been age-appropriate. Young mm. people have been put with older people, older people on their own. So yeah. he give, he 
really gives, I thought that it was a very practical article for somebody who's obviously such an esteemed academic. He gives a list of sort of dot point practical suggestions of things that could be done to improve the existing system. That's right. And I think too, what we know, I mean, you can see it when you look at the figures of um, you know, there's a there's a terrible spike in suicide in younger people, um, and then you know again in in you know quite elderly people, and and I can't remember <laughs> I can't remember which of the thirty one contributors it's in, but um, no, I can actually. It's Tanmoy Goswami who writes for us. He was a correspondent for the correspondent. He was their sanity correspondent, and he talked about a pe- a woman that he came in contact with who made him think about mental health in the aged care space, which is, of course, a really different thing to uh, mental health in, you know, people who are, I don't know, 15 to 25 or whatever the specific age bracket is. But in all of these things, it's, I guess it's it's like the conversations that we've been having more broadly about how much um, pharmaceutical research is done with trials that are mainly administered to very discrete portions of a population so maybe a lot of the people that something's tested on are men but then Mm. how do you know how that intersects with women so it's it sort of feels to me like part of what pat's talking about here is this growing awareness that we have that there is there are so many more complexities again in terms of looking at what's happening in which part of the population what they need at that time but also at that kind of pharmacological level, if it's about the research, well, how do those things differ as well across different ages and genders and, you know, experiences? Ashley, let's talk now about the uh, essay by Professor Niraj Gill. He's been a psychiatrist for 20 years and he has a PhD on human rights, on the human rights of people with mental disabilities. He was a clinical director of a mental health service in regional Queensland, which included a 200 bed long stay institution and when he got there he found to his horror that many people had been there for decades and this was at a time where as he says that the world really everywhere was shifting to care in the community he made changes there which led to 80 patients being discharged into the community and a number of the long stay wards being closed although he says that at least 100 people had to remain because they were too unwell and he's very clearly concerned about the welfare of those people. But in terms of the change that he made that led to 80 long-term patients being discharged, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how did he go about making those changes and how difficult was it? It seemed to me this was a really significant thing to change the mindset, both of those working in the institution and also to manage opposition from local residents and the media. I think these were two enormous things. So I think Naraj is one of the really... um he himself is a kind of complex and fascinating contributor to the book. So he he has this practical experience as a psychiatrist. Um, he has his own uh, research and fascination with this intersection between mental health and human rights. He also works in an academic space. He was the acting chief psychiatrist of Queensland for a while. Um, but he also is uh, a writer and a researcher who is, again, very willing to share personal experience on the page, which makes it a really powerful piece. And I know um, the way that he comes into this um, essay for us is through a very powerful dream that he had when he was trying to work out 
what he should do, whether he should take on this position, you know, that would require him to start working with this very big institution and start working with some of the changes that needed to be made there. And I think um, one of the things that really stayed with me about his experience was he talked about, and I can't remember what his phrase was, but it was a sense of getting back on the floor, like being being amongst be, doing the actual work, not just giving a directive from on high about how something was going to change. Being the ward psychiatrist. That's I think right. I think it was a time where there were, as there often are in the healthcare system, chronic shortages of certain people. And so by putting himself on the front line, as it were, um, it allowed him to have, and he required the people he was working with to have very frank conversations about what needed to be done what could be done, how it could be done, what they were concerned about doing. I know that in terms of, you know, the specifics he writes about uh, in the piece for us, he was very clear on just feeling the kind of tipping points when different sectors of the community got behind Mm -hmm. this. So there was certainly opposition, but then there would be, I think he mentioned one church that became very actively involved with this idea of saying we can change how we do this. Now, the other thing that was sort of playing out around all of this for Niraj when he was in this um, in this position in regional Queensland were some pretty big changes in Queensland's uh, political life and a particular premier that we had and, you know, changes that were made around that. One of the most extraordinary things that I discovered in reading Niraj's piece, he talks about this sort of transition to care in the community. He talks about, you know, um, housing changes that need to be made, people who really need to be helped to feel able to take this step, who have been, who regard this place as their home, who've been here for so long. So a very big process of learning and change management and adaptation. And providing support. So he talks about, for example, the role of NGOs in providing support for people. That's right. And actually the, the sort of the nurses and the people in the institution understanding the experiences of the highly institutionalized people when they have been out there. Now, at the same time, um, this directive comes down that all uh, certain sorts of wards in Queensland mental health institutions have to be locked again. And he talks about, you know, this place having been a place where a lot of the residents can go for a walk and go Mm. into the garden and the doors are locked. Now, that's quite shocking when you're reading about what, as he identifies, this global movement towards care in the community and bringing that into this regional setting. What I found profoundly shocking, and he said it again at our launch in Brisbane recently for this edition of Griffith Review, is the fact that that change was made several years ago now. The wards in Queensland are still locked. Mm. It was never undone. And I think um, that was one of the most extraordinary realizations for me to understand that, you know, this was a a very dramatic policy change that had been made, which would have immediately impacted hundreds of people. But we are now years Mm. down the track and we are, you know, we're several premiers down the track um, or we're a premier down the track. And just that that is still, that that change was never, those people never got back the ability Mm. to go for their walk in the garden. I think that that sense that the issue could rise to the top of a public agenda and there could be whatever, you know, attention was paid at the time, but it dipped down again and it hadn't ever been undone. And I think when you go to the the kind of root insistence that he has on 
thinking about mental health in the context of human rights, something like that is a really, really important point to actually understand as a reader and as a citizen. His perspective is invaluable, of course, as a practitioner, but also as somebody who's done a PhD in human rights. And he Mm. talks about things that perhaps we don't think about in terms of the everyday human rights abuses that people suffer who have a mental illness, denial of the right to social inclusion, denial to adequate living standards, uh, denial of the right to be free from discrimination. And he makes a point at the end, he says, of all my 20 years in psychiatry, in this field, doing this PhD, there's one thing that strikes him more than anything else. And he says that is, to protect the human rights of people with mental disabilities, you need to look at the whole social, legal and political context. And he talks about specifically how you need to address social inequalities Mm. and you also need to address social attitudes in terms of stigma and discrimination. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about his findings in respect to those issues. Well, it's the really big picture stuff, isn't it? It's it's this insistence again, um, as with Professor McGorry's piece on on the complexity of what's at play and on not not narrowing your focus and saying, well, we do this thing and that fixes this, but at looking at the broad spectrum of it's like a lifelong learning approach, isn't it? It's looking at the broadest possible um, scope and spectrum, and I think. Um, I think for for someone in his in Niraj's particular position of that interface between needing to enforce policy, needing to deliver practical care, watching that play out at a really you know at an actual community level, it is that insistence that this isn't the silo, this isn't the little space that you look at. Um, we do need to look at all sorts of other inequities all sorts of opportunities. Um, stigma is huge and that comes back to the um, to the idea of Kyle Perry's that I was talking about earlier of just the way uh, the whole community kind of understands that this is about everyone, not just about these people or those people that you can, you know, break out and fracture off. So, and Professor McGorry's point as well about public education, the need yes. for greater public education to reduce that stigmatisation and discrimination. Yeah. yeah. So I think, again, it's the, it's the, it's honouring and being willing to sit with the complexity um, and to say, you know, I can see how my particular speciality feeds into this this way, but there are all these other parts of the puzzle that we need to look at as well. Ashley, let's move now to look at the piece written by Pat Dudgeon with two other people. She was the, or is the first registered Indigenous psychologist in Australia, and her piece is called Decolonising Psychology. She argues powerfully that it's critically important for psychology as a discipline to learn and apply Indigenous practices and knowledge in the areas of wellbeing and prevention. And she says this is necessary for a whole lot of reasons, but most especially so that we decolonise psychology. What does she mean by that? What does she write about on, on that topic? Well, I think this is this was one of the most um, – I, I knew about um, Professor Pat Dudgeon's work because I, I knew of her as the first Indigenous registered psychologist in Australia and um, I think this is one of the most exciting pieces in the book in a way for me. She's writing with Dawn Carliston-Jones and Joanna Alexi who are two of her collaborators in Perth and 
it's talking about, well, there are, there are several elements here and one is she talks about an apology that was made by the Australian Psychological Association and I think it's as far back as 2016 now, um, which was acknowledging the trauma and acknowledging what what had been visited on or what had been uh, done to Indigenous populations, Indigenous communities in Australia by the profession of psychology and acknowledging that, you know, there was, there, was a, there was an apology that needed to be made there. And that was in particular in relation to the role of um, the involvement of the profession in the stolen generation. Yes, yes. She says that that's almost the most important, which I thought was really interesting, that apology. It's a very powerful piece of writing to go back and read again. And I think what is wonderful about this piece is that it looks at then other steps that have been taken in this profession. And the one that most excited me was this insistence now that Indigenous knowledge, um, Indigenous perspective, Indigenous, not Indigenous learning, but but the, the sort of complexity of Indigenous experience and and how it intersects with with mental health and with psychology, this now has to sit at the heart of any mm. curriculum, any psychological curriculum in Australia. And from the perspective of, you know, an idea of reckoning, an idea of listening, an idea of, of understanding um, what has happened in this place in the, through the colonial project, through the process of invasion and dispossession and, and the ongoing, um, the ongoing impacts of that, the ongoing trauma, the ongoing, um, the ongoing issues that need to be looked at. I just felt the this this particular discipline saying we will place this thing at the heart of any curriculum so that anyone who's coming in, learning in this space and then working in this space has to has to have this this perspective as part of what they are learning in this in this environment was profoundly important um, and and profoundly exciting as well. That only happened in 2019 as a result of work done by a project started in 2012 called mm. the Australian Indigenous Psychology Education Project. So as you say, those accreditation standards were introduced in 2019 and there was something else that I thought was really important. It also, the new accreditation required all schools of psychology to actively provide support to and recruit and ret retain uh, indigenous students. How important is that in her uh, in her opinion? I think it's hugely important. Um, and again, it, it feels like um, it feels like a very belated but important part of an ongoing process, and not just in the context of this one discipline, this one group of you know people who might be training in a particular profession, but in the broader in the broader kind of context of of how of the work that of Australia that Australia is doing about reckoning and understanding its past um, it feels to me like a very exciting and potential thing to have one discipline say this sits at the core of what we do and beyond this particular edition and this particular focus to see I'm sure there are other spaces where that is already being taken up, but to see if this is part of 
of a kind of um, of a change in any discipline to say in this continent in this piece of history and looking at these 200 and where are we now almost 50 years this has to sit at the core of what we teach and how we expect people to practice when they go into the world and who we would like to invite into that process of practicing as well let's move now to memoir there's a couple of pieces of memoir that i'd like us to talk about the first is by ruby hillsmith she's a poetry fellow at writers victoria and she's the a wheeler center hot desk fellow Ruby is 23. She writes a deeply personal piece about how she had her first hospital admission at the age of 16 and she's had multiple admissions since then. She describes the current system as a labyrinth of disparate services devoid of guidance or continuity. What are her own experiences of the system as a patient? What are some of the problems that she experienced firsthand? Ruby is a voice I'm so excited to have found for this edition. She's an extraordinary, extraordinary writer. And this is a deeply personal piece and I am conscious of her position as an emerging writer. Mm. It's very brave. Oh, it's, it's, it's very brave and also it's very clear and also in some parts it's very funny, which I really um, think is. is important to say. And I think when she and I had our first conversation, so Ruby was someone who I'd been um, alerted to her work by another writer and who knew that we were starting to think about this edition. And so Ruby and I started to have a conversation about whether she would be interested in contributing to this book. And she began by telling me, um, which I, I think she makes reference to, but it's only quite fleeting now and where we ended up. She talks about her process of going through the HSC and she went to a particular school where she was, she said it was an incredibly supportive and wonderful way of of navigating year 12. And she, she and I had a lot of our early conversation about sitting with the word asylum and understanding the safety that was part of that and the the opportunity that was part of that as well as all those other connotations of the word that we might have now the piece that she came that she brought with us subsequently i think talked to a lot of things that were happening as well for ruby in the meantime so there are there are um there are disconnects between you know how she is how her her um medication regime mm. are addressed there are disconnects between um you know different bits of um different bits of advice that she's given and, you know, sort of how things play out. But there's also this really wonderful and, as I say, often funny exploration of just what it is to be a human making sense of that piece of existence in that particular institution at, at one time and how how people do in the instant of being there support each other but then mm. the changes that they have to make beyond that to support themselves when they're back out in the community. There's one particularly moving piece where she talks about a woman that she met mm. in one of her stays in one particular space, um, the kind of the bond that they had, the the relief and release for this woman, you know, at the when they parted, you know, when one of them went on their way, but then coming back into contact with her again a year later and, you know, having a sense that, you know, she didn't even didn't remember who she her. was. Yeah. So I think just being able to bring this extraordinary honesty, this extraordinary voice, and and as I say, the kind of clarity that wants to tell you 
that half the problem is that you're just cold all the time. You just can't get mm, warm. That, that was heartbreaking. Um, but also wants to, you know, tell you the funny stuff, you know, tell you the jokes, tell you the what happens when someone wakes an entire ward full of people up at 3 o'clock in the morning and how everybody just makes sense of that opportunity to be in the same place at the same time. To get warm. To get warm. <laughs> yes. So there, it's it's this beautiful piece that I think really sits with the microcosm of Ruby's experience and she is amazingly generous in what she brings onto the page but the macrocosm of that when you sort of pull out and look at that at the sort of bigger, the bigger space in terms of just how hard it is to find what it is that will help, what it is that might be useful, how hard it is to navigate it, all the different, you know, competing systems and um, requirements and things like that. It's it's a really elegant and extraordinarily generous piece of work. So a couple of things that caught my eye that she talked about specifically, one was the general overprescription of drugs. Mm. So between 16 to 23 that's seven years. She'd been on 15 different medications and one of them included Cymbalta. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is a very controversial drug which is known to create chemical dependency. Another point that she made which was just very, well, it was alarming really, was in terms of having her practitioners listen to her and her needs. Mm. So she talks about her doctor who she says is very kind and is trying to help her, but he, I'm not sure if it's a he or a she, prescribes electroconvulsive therapy and she says that is known to cause short-term memory loss but yet I've told this doctor over and over that right now it's really important for me to stay at university Mm. and also to write this essay and then there's another thing she points out she the doctor it is a he finds out she comes in carrying a memoir by somebody who is has been a victim of the mental health care system themselves I think in England and who's written it fairly searing memoir mm. about it, which is fairly critical of the system. And the doctor sort of sees that and tut tuts and tells her that it's unhelpful for her to come in with negative beliefs. I mean, as you say, there is a lot of humour there as well, as well as, uh, as well as these nitty gritty sort of facts, which are really very frightening. And I think what the what the piece is overall is um, this amazing this amazing emerging writer navigating on and off the page where she is. And I think um, that's part of, as you say, that sort of desire to be heard fully is partly saying as a writer I need to be heard. That comes back to the sort of age-appropriate things that Professor McGorry is talking about as well of just I think it is with the medication that you mentioned, I can't remember in in, uh, Ruby's sort of regime, but, you know, it turns out that there are some that have, have been specifically problematic for younger women. Um, and you, you think, well, it's the weighing up of the, you know, you, is it that as a, as a doctor you're, you're looking for the thing that will help? But, but who is putting all of these different parts together, all the different pieces of medication, let alone, well, how does this intersect with this particular person, where they are in their life, what it is they're trying to do? They're at university, they're, they're you know, working as a writer and all of that is important. When you go back to those kinds of, you know, insisting on complexity and nuance, I think in the in the introduction piece that I wrote for the book, I think that I said there was um I was so conscious of the way so many writers had trusted us with their stories. I there's a lot of memoir around at the moment which, you know, 
people are very willing to share a lot of things and I am conscious that there are, there are, there are other ethical questions around that. There are questions of oh, there's a whole kind of thing called trauma porn of, you know, people just wanting the terrible stories and we – we were very clear we didn't want to make a book like that and the fact that so many writers did trust us with their words, did understand that what, what we were hoping to do was share these experiences and in the complexity of that, yes, we were going to have to tell some stories that are going to be pretty confronting for some readers but we hoped that there would be an invitation to either learn something more or understand something more or maybe understand something more about themselves as readers but yeah I think Ruby's is the is one of those kind of pinnacle pieces for me of just a, a writer who was so willing to say I would like to share all of these different facets of this experience with you and this is why because I think it matters that I'm seeing in this system as much as anyone is seeing in this system. And I think you flag in the introduction you you acknowledge that this book might be um quite confronting for some people and you you give the connection to Lifeline, the number. So obviously that warning is given here as well. If anybody's finding uh, what we're talking about confronting, I don't have the number in front of me, but if you Google Lifeline, there's a, a number that you can call. Let's talk now about Masaka Fukui, who's a Japanese-Australian journalist and writer. She has been hospitalised for depression as endured many treatments over the years, but she says... None of them has dealt with how being from a minority race intersects with my mental illness. I thought that was really fascinating. She says that previously she had no cultural cues, but something that brings her great comfort is that she finds a number of books by other Asian writers, a number of whom are women, who suffer mental illness. And she talks a little bit about those books and the comfort that they give her. And one in particular gives her the title for her essay, which is in called which is called Embracing Ugly Feelings. Ashley, how do those writers help her and what are the ugly feelings that she's talking about and how does she learn to manage them? Well, I think uh, Masako, this is an amazing, another amazingly generous piece. And um, Masako's uh, writes about periods of depression. Uh, she writes about a number of, at least one um, suicidal moment that she had. She writes about um, moments of hospitalization that she's gone through. And she also writes about, there's a beautiful line where she she comes into the piece writing about her mother and her relationship with her mother. But there's a beautiful piece where she talks about the difference between talking to us as readers and the difference between talking or not talking with her mother because her mother expects her to get well. And I think um, part of what is part of what was so moving about this piece is Masako, I think, has taken a long time to be ready to write it, and you can feel that on the page. Um, she is. She talks about these other books that she's come across of writers who I guess, again, this comes back to the kind of complexity and context, doesn't it, who give her a different sense of herself, not just in the context of what she is exploring and experiencing in terms of her own mental well-being, but also in the cultural space of her position as um, inside Australian society and how all these different things interconnect. So one of the things that I found most interesting about it was she talks about 
kind of appropriation of little bit. Her background is Japanese Australian, and she talks about the appropriation of little bits of almost shorthand from Japanese philosophies or Japanese ideas. And this amazing like Hari Kari and yes, Kamikaze. She yes, picks those on the out sort of negative words. side that they were things when she was growing up. They were the things that everybody knew about, and that was kind of what was thrown at her. Which, if you were, you know, I imagine would be confronting stereotype. That's right. Yeah. But what she also does then is talks about um, the kind of other ones that we have now, which is things like, and I'm not going to be able. I'm sorry to remember the Japanese words for them, but it's the it's forest bathing or it's the beautiful is it wabi sabi the beautiful way of repairing something that's been broken with a beauty and line of gold beauty and imperfection. And but as she says, like these are just. These are just single words or single ideas that have been completely decontextualized, pulled out of a much bigger culture, a must, much bigger uh, narrative, a much bigger historical tradition and position, and just kind of flicked into this completely alien space as, you know, as these little kind of punctuating dot points, mm. which, which, we we think a lot and and you know we think more and more about questions of appropriation questions about you know who owns different parts of knowledge who can speak about not who can speak about what so much as how we should be speaking about different things and i think one of the things that is beautiful about Masako's piece is, is sort of her internal navigation through other writers several of whom are american Asian writers, writers with Asian-American backgrounds, which is, she says is different to the Australian, Asian-Australian context. But but just, again, it's the refining and the refining and the, the context and the complexity um, and, and this sort of quite searing honesty that she brings onto the page. We spoke with Masako as part of a conversation at the Sydney Writers' Festival this year with Catherine Heyman and Lech Blaine, who are also contributors to the book, and one of the beautiful things that she spoke about, and she was talking specifically about Lech Blaine's piece in this edition. That's a piece on surviving survivor's guilt. Lech's survivor's just recently guilt. written a book That's about right. that. So this is, yes, this is the next step from the book. And, and Masako was complimenting Lech on the way he he leaves space for the reader to not just navigate the interiority of his experience but through that to navigate the interiority of their own experience. And that kind of complexity, I think, in not in opposition, but, but as a point of difference to a lot of the very quick um, first-person memoirs that are out there that are telling extraordinary stories, but, but the space that a writer makes to invite the reader to do work in the writer's story and invite the reader to do work in their own story through the writer's story. I think one of the reasons I understood that Masako had responded to Lex's piece in that way, and Lex's piece is an extraordinary invitation in that way, is that Masako's own piece does that, not just giving you her experience and letting you think into it in a different way, but what it allows you to think about your own experiences, your own responses and reactions to things as well. There's an extraordinary invitation in all of that. And she talks a bit, I thought it was very interesting, the way she talked about um, externalising rather than just internalising. Mm-hmm. So 
it seemed that she really got from these books by other writers that were Asian or part Asian, the idea that a lot of the negative feelings that she was having that were productive of depression arose out of political and social powerlessness that comes from being part of a minority group. And it was, I th- it seemed to me that that was where it really resonated with her, that she was able to draw some comfort in thinking, well, some of the problems that I'm having, they're not actually my fault at all. This is actually a rational response to the position that I occupy in society as a member of a minority group. And I think that intersects with um, what we were saying about Professor Niraj Gill's piece in terms of coming to these much bigger questions of social equity, um, these much bigger questions of structural inequality, um, these much bigger questions that sit beyond what we might think of in a shorthand way as people's state of mental health. Um, I think also that lovely line that you just said about, you know, actually this is a rational response to the position I find myself in also connects with an extraordinary essay in the book by Sam Alexander called, uh, which is about exploring the idea of uh, whether one is insane in a sane world or sane in an insane world, Mm. which I think probably um, in the context of kind of some of the biggest existential Mm. questions you can get to around climate change and the kind of spaces that we're facing there. And the neoliberal world. That's right. It's a really interesting thing to start to explore. So again, I think that's the way you start to see the kind of connections Mm. and intersections, the way some of these pieces speak to each other in a way or complement each other or, you know, the way you can step through them in a in their own conversation. I think that also ties back to what to Professor Gill is writing about where he says that a lot of pe- if you think about it, a lot of the people who have these mental illnesses, in fact those illnesses have been caused by society's denial to them of basic human rights, such as a right to shelter, such as a right mm. to education, such as a right to be free from discrimination. Mm. Ashley, let's move now to look at fiction. There are four pieces of fiction and six pieces of poetry We'll just talk about a couple of the pieces of fiction. Let's start uh, with Gretchen Sherm's story. Mm. So she writes short stories. She's written a novel and she also does literary criticism. Her short story is called The Closure Company. What's it about and what aspects of mental health does it touch on? I love Gretchen as a writer and I particularly love this short story. So The Closure Company, the premise for The Closure Company is that if you have gone through – an unexpected and shocking loss, a grief, you know, lost someone that you love, you can go to this company and you can have the conversations with the person that you've lost to try to achieve your point of closure. And she uses as her trigger point. I'll just take you back a point. Who who is playing the role of those people? Who who is that standing in for the lost person? They're actors, aren't they? I think they're actors. I loved the idea that this was going to be a way of you know vast employment opportunities for actors if Absolutely. we could actually lift this out of a fictional realm and bring it into being. So yes, these are you know this is uh, this is the the latest kind of employment opportunity for actors. So in, they in take Gretchen on the role of the love lost loved That's one, right. and she gets to ask them all the questions that she's been wanting to ask the person who she's lost. That's right. Now, she's lost her partner and it turns out that she's lost him in um, that that awful, still astonishing story of the Malaysian Airlines plane that disappeared over the Indian Ocean. Um, So there are a lot of extraordinary fictional elements at play here. Um, One is just the, the... 
um, the idea of a closure company, which seems like such a useful kind of thing to be able to access. Uh, and she keeps going back. She does. With more questions, So she? the the character is initially very sceptical. It's been some years uh, in her life and but, you know, once she's in, she's really in and she just, she keeps going back. She has more questions, more questions, more questions. And what is also happening is you're getting the sense of the rest of the world outside and Gretchen brings the character to this beautiful kind of realisation at the end, not so much about the conversations she's having at the closure company but about what is happening outside of that hotel that she's going to for those moments. I, um, again, I think this is a lovely, there's something about the, the curating of each edition, which is about um, the pleasure of being able to think about texture and tone and sort of relative weights of things. And I love the way the fiction and the poetry in each edition augments and um, and sort of throws some of the questions in some of the non-fiction pieces into a different kind of relief or a different kind of spotlight. Gretchen's piece I think works amazingly well with another memoir piece by Brooke Davis which I think is very powerful about her mum and you know losing her mum and selling her mum's house quite a lot of years later. So again that lovely kind of complementarity between the two but the closure company um I think when we read it, we just all thought this is a brilliant business model. <laughs> it is. It's, it is indeed. It's a gra- It's just a great idea. Let's talk now about the piece by Alex Miller, who of course is an award-winning Australian novelist. The short story that he's written for this is called A Woman Alone. What's it about and what's his narrator's state of mind? So we're in a cafe with an older woman. She's having coffee with someone who... <laughs> He, I think, would think that he is her friend. She feels slightly more complicated about that and we're just in, we're in her head. So we are, we are seeing what she thinks about what he's doing, how he's talking, what he's presuming, what he's misunderstanding, what he expects of her, what he is oblivious to, um, her life, her relationships, her relationship with her own daughter, um, her status as, you know, someone whose husband has left her a long time ago. We are we are just in this little moment of time, and and she is really, she is doing her own kind of reckoning with about who she wants to be and what she wants to say and how she wants to live. And she's taking a stance. And at some levels, it's a very very small moment in a cafe in a suburb in a city. And in some levels, it's this very, very expansive story about someone saying, I don't want to do this this way anymore and I'm not going to. I loved his book, Autumn Lang. And mm. I, I, I mean, I've loved all of his books, but I did marvel then at how the amazing capacity he has to get inside the head of a woman. Mm. And I had very much the same sense reading this piece that it was quite extraordinary. Let's move now to talk about poetry. And the piece that I'd like to talk about is by David Stavanger, an award-winning poet, and he calls himself a lapsed psychologist. His poem is called Intensifier. What's it about? It's about everything. (laughs) It's about sharks, dentists, dogs, psychologists, ocean, it is, we commissioned this piece from David. Um, I'd been reading some of the poetry that he was posting on Facebook a couple of years ago, which I think fed into Case Notes, the book that won the Poetry Award at the Victorian Premier's Prize recently. I think he's a phenomenal poet. And so when we started to 
think about this edition, we knew that he was someone we would like in there. And he gave us this very long concrete poem, I think it's called. Um, and it is uh, funny and and infinite in a really amazing way. And the way it follows trains of thought and moments, he's walking his dog on a beach and in some ways that is the entire size of the poem, but in other ways the entire size of the poem is the size of the world, how psychology works, um, you know, so much again brought so generously onto the page by David himself, um, so much phenomenally elegant observation and witty observation as well, like just layers and layers of playing with words, and I don't mean that flippantly, but making language work at so many different levels so that you're you're following him on a description about one thing and he will flip a word, he will flip the meaning of a word and take it off into another sentence and suddenly you're, you know, somewhere else, somewhere else altogether. Um, it's just this wonderful, it's a ride of a piece, incredibly generous. Um, and I think some of the lines comparing dentists and sharks are some of the best lines I've heard in a long time. Finally, I want to ask you about the Picture Gallery. This edition features something called Pandography by Jane Leonard. She's a writer and an artist. Could you tell us a little bit about that, Ashley? I could. So we'd, we usually have a photo essay or a, a picture essay or a picture gallery in each edition of Griffith Review. And often um, in our first edition this year, we were working with Trent Park, the amazing photographer who's based down in Adelaide, who works for Magnum and you know has an amazing international body of work. I love pandography because Jane Leonard is not that photographer. Um, she is, as you said, she's a writer and a poet. She was part of the famous, infamous 112-day lockdown in, in Melbourne. Um, and as part of her way of navigating that time creatively, she invented this thing called pandagraphs, which were graphs that were going to measure in a very playful way the pandemic, I guess. And she starts to look um, she starts to look in her own house, she starts to look in her own yard, she starts to look in her local landscape, she starts to look at the city skyline and she starts to see that, you know, we're all getting really good at reading graphs and charts in the first months of the pandemic. We're all getting really good at, you know, flattening the curve and, you know, watching for the upticks and all of those things. And she makes these, um, she makes these images that just find those kinds of shapes in nature in a sense or in 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 an environment and so it, it might be the pegs on her washing line it might be um, a piece of police tape on a fence it might be a vine growing a certain way it might be you know looking at Melbourne's uh, landscape as a bar chart in and of itself and and she thinks about well it's this playful idea of measurement and this playful idea of exploration and it's obviously one way while she's doing it she's putting it all on Instagram it's one of the ways that she's engaging with her own state of mind I guess through what would have been quite an extraordinary period of 112 days if you were in Melbourne last year. And it, it is so clever it is almost like a sight gag it's a little it bit is. hard to to talk about it but when you see it you don't need any words to 
just get it immediately. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think probably a lot of us were doing it in different ways for ourselves. It, it spoke to me of something that's maybe quite um, oh, quite very deeply buried in all of us where we're, use, we're trying to read the world for signs. We're trying to look for omens. We're, we, we don't want to believe that we're superstitious, but we're just going to, you know, look for the little signifier or symbol that something is going on. And I felt she had kind of realised that in a way and they they are again a kind of playful um, a playful intersection with a quite extraordinary piece of time. They are perfect in an Instagram world. I can see exactly why they began to resonate with people. They were one of the 556 pieces that came to us as sort of part of the general submission and I think, yeah, we just all thought they were they were fun. They were a really interesting exploration of a different kind of state of mind. There's just so much rich material in this edition, Ashley. I'd just like to mention a couple of other pieces. There's a piece of memoir by Catherine Heyman, whose book-length memoir, Fury, is just out and has been getting rave reviews. There's an essay by Tanmoy Goswani, the world's first sanity correspondent, I love that description, who writes on politics, economics and culture of mental health. And right near the end, there's a really um, heartfelt plea from writer Angela Smith for us to leave behind the talk of resilience, which seeks to blame the victims for their mental illness rather than questioning the structural inequalities and social factors that have caused it. So that's just another three that I commend to listeners. They're all wonderful. My final question to you, Ashley, is what is your hope for this issue? What conversation would you like to start? I think um, I think it is about giving people different ways to have their own conversations about states of mind, not just mental health or mental illness, but but states of mind. And whether that's uh, for themselves, whether that's for people that they care about or people that they work with, it's sort of one of the easiest ways to start a conversation is to say to someone, I just read this really interesting thing. And I hope that the book does that in so many different ways. So I I think the other thing that's really exciting for me are those points of intersection. So we mentioned Pat McGorry um, and Pat Dudgeon's pieces. We also have a, a long interview with uh, the Secretary Treasury, Dr. Stephen Kennedy, who was trained or trained as a nurse and began his training as a psychiatric nurse before he became an economist. So to have a man with that kind of background in the position of Secretary of Treasury, while we're navigating a pandemic, one of the things I'm most excited about is we actually are getting those three into a room to have the conversation between them. So I, I hope that this that this keeps sparking those conversations, whether it's something someone wants to find a way to say about themselves and this gives them the means to do it, or whether it is on a bigger policy level of allowing someone to say, listen, at this structural level, we really need to be looking at this. And, you know, here's another kind of aspect of it you mightn't have thought of before. I think that's my hope for all of them is that people people see the connections and then, you know, take their own steps beyond that. Ashley, finally, for people who've been listening who 
I'm hoping will all now be determined to go out and get their hands on a copy of Griffith Review. How do they do that? We've got lots of options. We like to make it easy. Uh, You can find us in all good bookshops, as the saying goes. Uh, You can come to our website, griffithreview.com, and you can buy single editions there. But you can also subscribe, so you get four editions that way. Um, You can begin with this edition. You can go back an edition. So, yep, we really do try to make it easy to find. We also do have... Um, all the pieces online and there are different ways that people can access them there as well. Ashley, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, That's been a most illuminating, fascinating conversation and I am so looking forward to having four such conversations with you a year in relation to each edition of Griffith Review. Thanks, Nicole. It's been lovely. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.